Welcome. Good morning. I hope you're not sleepy, sleep deprived. Um, my name is Chad Donahoe, interim pastor at Grace, and we have come to the last minor prophet. So disclaimer that I should have mentioned from the very beginning, because the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, the minor prophet's names, there may be differences of pronunciation. For instance, I say Habakkuk, you may say Habakkuk. I say Haggai, you may say Haggai, and that's okay. And with that in mind, go ahead and turn to the book of Malachi. That, yeah, Malachi. We are definitely in the last book, Malachi, and we will be in verses, or chapter one, or actually what I'll read this morning is Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and then we, I will read the end of it, Malachi 4, 1 through 6, and I'll do my best to preach on the middle of it as well. So with that, let me pray uh, as we open up the Word. In my prayer, we'll take one of Paul's prayers, we'll make it our own. This prayer is out of Philippians chapter 1. Father, it is our prayer that our love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that we may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Malachi chapter 1, starting verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord of Israel, or, or to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild in ruins, or rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. For your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. And then to chapter 4, starting in verse 1. That great sound of pages turning. Chapter 4, verse 1. And For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down, on the, uh, tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. And together the grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Larry Crabb, a noted counselor and author, wrote a good book with a good title, Shattered Dreams, God's Unexpected Path to Joy. 
Now, this is not just a random book endorsement, but I'm connecting it to Micah. The summary of the book is essentially this. In a fallen world, we will have shattered dreams. We know this. Think of relationships. Could be jobs. Could be health. Could be tragedies. Right? But under those shattered dreams are at times questions that we ask of God, wondering why he is not delivering. The book of Micah, in many ways, is about shattered dreams and a series of questions that's asked of God, with God's people wondering why God has not delivered. So let's put ourselves in their sandals as we think about this time period of the minor prophets. Malachi is ministering to the remnant of God's people who have returned from exile in Babylon back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. So this is just a quick Old Testament history, right? So if we look back to the, uh, throughout, the, throughout the Old Testament, we see God's people continually faithless, though God was faithful. In fact, God established his covenant it's the last minor prophet. We got to do this. God's covenant. I will be your God. You will be my people. Right? God established his covenant. He said he will be faithful to them. And yet God's people were continually faithless. And so God allowed, because of their faithlessness, God allowed um, them to be oppressed by other nations. So we have Assyria that came and conquered God's people. Then Babylon uh, came and conquered God's people. And if in your minds, how many of you are thinking the ABCs of exile? Yes. That makes me happy. If you weren't thinking that, that makes me sad. Um, but they're conquered by Babylon, and then they are 70 years in exile. But there was still hope. What God allowed is Cyrus, the C, ABC of exile, Cyrus of Persia, to um, allow God's people to go back to Jerusalem to build the temple. So... There was this, with God's people building the temple, there was this great anticipation of this glorious future of this temple, this glorious future of God's people. But then as we come to Malachi, dreams are shattered, they're disillusioned, they're discouraged, they are doubting God's favor. So they're back in the promised land, but things do not seem so promising at this point for them. The earlier prophets spoke of this restoration of God's people, but it doesn't seem to be happening. So this temple, by this time the temple under Malachi has been completed, but there's no glory to this temple like there was previously. When Moses, uh, when the tabernacle was finished under Moses, when the first temple was finished under Solomon, the scriptures say the glory of the Lord filled the temple would have been a spectacular sight, but with this second temple that they finished, not so much. They're also still under Persian rule. And the promises of the prophets, promises of peace, of prosperity, God's presence, not so much. They've become cynical. And we hear, throughout the book of Malachi, we hear their cynical perspective on the questions that they ask of God. So, before we dive into Malachi, the question is, why do we need this book? 
Why do we need Malachi? Multiple reasons, I'll give a few. We also have shattered dreams. We wonder at times why God does not seem to be delivering. And what Malachi reminds us of is behind these shattered dreams or under these shattered dreams at times are questions of God and not far behind that is a cynical heart. And there's this warning in Malachi. Trust the Lord. He will be faithful. Trust the Lord. But also this, and this is one of the points that Larry Crabb makes in his book, Shattered Dreams. When life does seem shattered, and in those moments when God seems really distant, at times he is doing his most profound work in our lives. Also this, we need Malachi because it is a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament with glorious promises. So, thinking about the main theme of Malachi, here's my main theme for it. It's the covenant. I will be your God, you will be my people. It's all over the book of Malachi. doesn't say it directly, but it's there. And if you notice... There were two names mentioned at the very end of Malachi in chapter 4. Remember the law of Moses. So Malachi is telling the people, remember the law of Moses, look back, and then I will send Elijah the prophet before that great and awesome day of the Lord. So then Malachi is saying, look forward. And this is how we, how we see this book. The first few chapters of Malachi is God calling his people to look back at the law of Moses, but at their lack of faithfulness. The second half of the book is calling God's people in hope to look forward, that God will be faithful, that his people will be secure. God will be their God. He, they will be his people. And there's this uh, distinct pattern to the book. Uh, Malachi is essentially... Six disputes or complaints. And it goes like this. God brings a charge against uh, his people. His people respond with a question that's really a complaint. And then God gives an answer. So with that, Malachi chapter 1 verse 1 says the oracle. And this word oracle, uh, the idea of it is carrying. Uh, sometimes this is translated as burden. So there is this burden of this message from the Lord through Malachi to Israel. Now, it's important to note that Israel is mentioned again in this last book. If you remember, the God's people um, were, were the, called the Israelites throughout the Old Testament. Then the kingdom split into Israel in the north, Judah in the south, right? But then Israel was uh, conquered by Assyria, no more. But now God is calling his people Israel once again. This is the claim that they are still his people under his covenant, that God will still be good to his people. And what we're going to find in the first three complaints, which again are the first half of this book, Malachi points us back to the law of Moses and to Israel's lack of faithfulness. So with that, chapter uh, one, our first of six complaints is chapter one, verses one through five. But it begins with the declaration of God's covenant love. Verse two, I have loved you, says the Lord. But then here's the complaint. 
How have you loved us? And then the Lord's response. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Esau, or I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Okay, that hated meaning rejection, displeasure. And um, this remnant would have been familiar of the story of Jacob and Esau, and it's essentially this. God established his covenant with Abraham, and that covenant was to be passed on through the family from Abraham to Isaac, from Isaac to Esau, the firstborn. Long story short, Esau makes this tragic decision to uh, forego his birthright and the covenant blessings because he was hungry, and so Jacob traded him uh, with, for a bowl of soup. And then what we find, this is all under the sovereign hand of God. Jacob and his descendants later become, became, uh, or they're named Israel, right? And then Esau, his descendants become Edom, the Edomites. God established his covenant with Jacob, with Israel, and the rejection of Edom. So what God, God's point to this remnant is, is simple but profound, God's saying, how have I loved you? I chose you, and I set my love upon you. This is essentially, we find this an echo from Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8, where Moses declares to God's people, For you are a people holy to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any of the peoples that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. God is saying, yes, my people, I have punished you for a season, but I have a plan for you. You will experience, once again, my blessing. I will not be angry with you forever. But as for Edom, they were rejected. Now, Paul, in Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul quotes this when he says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, and makes this point that as a sinner, Esau did not deserve God's mercy But neither did Jacob or the Israelites or us. This point Paul makes is God will have mercy on whom he has mercy, and he will have compassion on whom he has compassion. Now, this can be a hard teaching. I fully recognize this. I remember years ago I was listening to a speaker at a conference, and I like how he handled this. He talked about how offensive this message can be of God choosing some but not choosing others. He says it's offensive, especially if we think of it this way, that there's this throng of people and they're basically approaching heaven's doors and knocking on the door, but God's saying no, not to you, and no, not to you, and yes to you, but no, no, no. He says that's not the picture at all. It's the picture of God standing at heaven with the offer of the gospel And everyone is running as fast and hard towards hell as they can go because they are enemies of God. And yet God, because of his grace and mercy, reaches out and grabs, and by grabs meaning, works in our hearts, changes our hearts so that we will come to him, 
find in him grace and mercy. And so what this doctrine is about, when we start talking about God's choosing, it's not just a debate piece, right? This is comfort for God's people. This is hope that though we are sinners, God did not give up. And the question that they're asking, God, how did you love us? If we ask that question, God, do you love me? How, how do I know that you love me? We can't look at our circumstances because our circumstances may be horrible. And we can't just trust our emotions because they may be out of whack based on our circumstances. But what's the proof? It's the cross. God demonstrated his love at the cross. The second complaint comes in chapters, or chapter 1, verse 6, through chapter 2, verse 9. And the complaint is against the priests of the day. That the first complaint, that's interesting, the, the, the complaint against God is you're not loving us. But now God turns the table towards the priest and says, you are failing to love me and you're through you leading my people astray. And, and here's what it is. If you think about the role of the priests, uh, simply put, they were to guard the truth of God. They were to teach people the truth of God. They were to accept the sacrifices and bring the sacrifices of the people before the Lord. You could say it this way. The priests were to stand in the middle. They were to stand between God and the people, drawing sinners close to God through teaching of Scripture, but also through the offering of sacrifices. But God says, you are not honoring my name. And then they ask the question, how have we despised your name? And God's answer is essentially this. You're putting roadkill on my altar. What you're, alter, what you're offering is lame, literally and figuratively. Like what they're bringing is the... the Malachi tells us they're bringing the blind, the animals for sacrifice are blind, they're injured, they're sick. They're not bringing what is worthy of the Lord. And this is forbidden, Leviticus 22, verses 17 through 25, Deuteronomy 15, verse 21, Deuteronomy 17, verse 1. It's all very clear. God's people are to offer sacrifices without blemish. And why is this so important? Because these sacrifices point to a perfect future sacrifice, an unblemished lamb of God. This is so important to God. But they are being um, dishonorable to God in their sacrificial system. And God continues the rebuke towards these priests in chapter 2, verses 7 through 8. It says, For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. In other words, they're no longer faithfully teaching and practicing the truth. So with this, this is a message to priests, so we can all take a deep breath, right, and say, whew, glad that's not us, glad we're not priests. Oh, but we are, right? First Peter chapter 2, 
We are chosen a royal priesthood, the scriptures say, a holy nation of people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of Christ. So how do we honor God? By accepting his sacrifice, first and foremost, the perfect sacrifice that he offered of Christ, by accepting that, realizing that our righteousness is only on that, not by our works. But then we follow that up with this from Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed by this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so with that, how do we think through this? For me, it's helpful to think as we are a holy priesthood, the priesthood of believers. What does this mean for our lives? Again, I think that the priest, the role of the priest was to stand between. We are a people who are called to stand in the middle, to stand between. In my mind, I have two pictures. We stand between the Garden of Eden and the new heavens and new earth, and we stand in a sinful, fallen world. And the scriptures tell us, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And as we're renewed in the scriptures, we are called to stand firm, stand strong. I think in terms of planting seeds and pulling weeds. We plant seeds of the gospel, we pull weeds of sin in our lives and around us to the best of our ability. We stand in the middle. We also stand in the middle in this way. We stand before a holy God and sinful people. And the scriptures tell us that we are to proclaim the excellencies of Christ as his priesthood of believers. Our next complaint is found, this is the third complaint in chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. I'm going to try to make this one fairly quick. Verse 13, essentially Malachi says, you cover the Lord's altar with your tears. They're crying and their question is, why is God not accepting our sacrifices? And, um, and Malachi explains it's because they're faithless. In this section, verses 2, 10 through 16, faithless is used five different times. And here's how they're faithless. They are marrying foreign wives... And the issue here is not an issue of race. It's an issue, you could say, of religion. These foreign wives have foreign gods that they serve. They're idolaters. Strictly forbidden that God's people would worship false gods. So they're taking these wives who serve other gods. The second sin that's named here is the Israelite men are also divorcing their Israelite women. Verse 14 and 15 Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. So Malachi makes it clear that this covenant between a husband and a wife involves God as part of that covenant and God as witness. And what was the heart behind this? 
What was God seeking? Godly offspring. It takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden, right? This command to Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. What were they to fill the earth with? Descendants. You could actually say that was before the fall, so they would be disciples, right? But they were to fill the earth ultimately with the glory of God. We still have that mandate to go and make disciples of all nations. Now we do it by way of evangelism. But the point is this. What was supposed to spread across the face of the earth is the glory of God. And what God desires is faithfulness to his people. And if I can say it this way, two times in here, verses 15 and 16, the phrase is used, so guard yourselves in your spirit and don't be faithless. Malachi was speaking directly to the men here. And so if I can just say, uh, speak to the men. The call is to be faithful to the wife of your youth. Now, some aren't married, right? Um, but faithfulness, no matter what God calls you to now and in the future, faithfulness, and especially this call to men. It says, guard yourselves in your spirit. So men, we guard our eyes, what we watch. We guard our minds, what we entertain. We guard our conversations. We guard our hearts. And if you have failed, there is forgiveness. Seek repentance and then guard your hearts, guard your minds, guard your conversations, guard your hearts. As we come to the, last, the second half of this book, we have three other complaints. These complaints begin to point towards the future. The first one, or the fourth complaint, you could say, is um, chapter 2, verses 17 through chapter 3, verse 5. And the complaint is this, verse 17. Lord says, you have, or Malachi says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. And then the question, how have we wearied him? The answer, by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he, meaning God, delights in them, meaning the evil. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? So here's the complaint. They are charging God with injustice. They're saying, we've heard all about this day of the Lord. Where is this day of the Lord? Why is it not here? God, if you are just, you will give our enemies what they deserve right now. And God's answer in chapter 3, verse 1, and it's also one of three glorious promises that we find in, Mike, uh, in Malachi, is this. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. So God's response is, Oh no, I see the injustices of the world, and I have a plan to take care of it, and I will send my messenger before that great an awesome day. And what we would understand of the context in this particular culture of the time is that before the arrival of a great king, you would send a messenger to announce his coming. And then we open up the pages of the Gospels. And what we find in Matthew chapter 11 and Mark chapter 1 and Luke chapter 7, 
They all quote Malachi 3 here. And they point to John the Baptist as that messenger. And what was John the Baptist's message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king, Jesus, had finally arrived as we open the pages of the New Testament. But look at chapter 3, verse 1, the second half of this verse. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant whom you delight below, or behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So, just to be clear, the Lord whom you seek and also the messenger of the covenant, it's the same person, right? Not two different people, same person, and will suddenly appear in his temple. And I love the way Luke's gospel opens. We're in chapter 2 of Luke. Joseph and Mary, after Jesus was born, brought him to the, ta- to the temple for his dedication. Simeon was in the temple. Luke tell, uh, tells us he is a devout and God-fearing man and that the Holy Spirit had revealed that Simeon would not die before he laid eyes on the Messiah. He sees Jesus. He takes Jesus into his arms, says he blesses God, and this is what he said. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of of all peoples, a light, for the, uh, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. What a promise. And then this same Jesus will cleanse the temple later from corruption. And then Jesus will actually fulfill the promises of the temple by cleansing sin through his atoning death. Look at Malachi's question in chapter 2, verse 4. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Okay, so now we have these two images of purification. A refiner's fire would be, have, involve metal. If you have a pure metal, it put an intense heat on it, so all the impurities that want to seek to cling to that metal would uh, fall away from it. Or the uh, fuller soap, strong soap for cleaning, right? Malachi goes on to explain that this one who is coming, this, he will bring a refiner's fire. He will purify God's people. And so there is this hope of this refiner. I like how one uh, commentator uh, put it. A refiner's fire purifies, burning away the impurities of pride, apathy, unbelief, removing what is unfit and impure, and transforming lives into a shining treasure that reflects his image, reflects his image more and more. So there's great hope, but there's also a warning here. We see the warning in chapter 3, verse 5. It says, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So to wrap this all up, if I could do this, what's, what they are, God's people are saying, when are you going to bring justice? They wanted the wicked to get what they deserved. Malachi's point is important for us to understand. He says nobody 
can endure the day of the Lord and stand on their own two feet, stand on their works. They need the refiner's fire. And what we find is they're asking for the ungodly to get what they deserve. It's not what they want. They're sinners as well. What they needed and what we want is not what we deserve. It's, it's grace. It's mercy. And that's what we find in Christ who took the fire of God's wrath, cleansed us of our sin. And the question they're asking is, God, you know, um, why does God not act? And the question Malachi brings is, are you ready? Are you ready for the day of judgment? It's a question for us. Has Christ paid for your sins? Has he purified you? Thank the Lord that that's first, the refining fire. That Jesus took on the fire of God's wrath. Because what comes next when he returns is judgment. Are we ready for that day? This next argument This complaint, the fifth one in chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. Um, The Lord begins with with this statement in verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Point is, God's saying, I'm a covenant-keeping, faithful God. I don't change. I have promised to bless my people, and I will. But God goes on to say, but you need to change. And we see this in verse 8. The question is, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. Again, the question they ask, how have we robbed you? God reveals, in your tithes. Okay, the word tithe means tenth. So think 10% of income. Uh, The tithe provided for the livelihood of the priest of that day, but also the care uh, and the provision for the poor. And obviously, God's people were not giving what was required, which revealed a lack of love, lack of trust for God, or a lack of trust in God to provide what they needed if they uh, followed his commands. And God's response in verse 10, he says, put me to the test. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Notice he said, no more need, not greed, right? It's interesting that God says, test me. He's saying, trust me. I desire to bless you, but you must give me your whole heart. And for us, how does the New Testament instruct us on giving? Well, there's, the New Testament does not give us a particular percentage to give, but we do have the Old Testament as our guide, and it's clear Paul commanded God's people in 1 Corinthians 12 to take up an offering on the Lord's day, and he commanded in 2 Corinthians 9 to give cheerfully. So as I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, there's another word for our money. The word is called sanctification. It's growth in holiness. Each week we dedicate our tithes and offerings, our tithes, 10% of income, offerings are above and beyond that. Here's what one guy wrote. 
Each week is a reminder to give and trust God. And do you give generously? Do you give 10%? If not, why not? God calls you to give generously and cheerfully. He is not after your money. He is after your heart. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. If you don't think you make enough to give generously, the question is, can you trust God? If you think you'll give more when you make more, you've likely deceived yourself. If you don't give with a little, you won't give with a lot. Or if, frankly, you make a lot of money and can't imagine giving 10%, same question, can you trust God? Our giving is all about motivation and mission. Motivation, gratitude for grace, understanding that we were bought with the precious blood of Christ. In Christ we are rich, God is our treasure, and we offer him our whole life, including our money and possessions. And mission, we give so that the church would grow and go. Grow believers and go make disciples. Are you robbing God? So the guy who wrote that was me. I just wanted to read it from my notes so I didn't miss anything. Our last one. Our last complaint is in chapter 3, verses 13 through 4, 3. God says, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. Then the question they ask, have we spoken against you? And the answer, you have said, it's I'm going to paraphrase some of this. It's vain to serve God. What profit is it? The arrogant are blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. And again, the complaint is that God is doing nothing about the evildoers and the injustice of the day. And with this answer to this complaint comes the second of two glorious promises in Malachi. In chapter 3, verse 16 through 18, there's this, essentially, uh, to, to summarize, there are those who feared the Lord, meaning rightly worshiping him, and they spoke with one another, and here's the promise to them. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and, the, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. A book of remembrance. It's actually a theme throughout the scriptures. In Exodus 32, 32, Psalm 56, 8, Psalm 139, 16, Daniel 7, 10, Daniel 12, 1, Revelation 20, verses 12 through 15. It's called the book of life. And it contains the name of those who belong to the Lord. In verse 17, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. What we have is this great promise of this book of life. And the names that are written in it are secure because of the blood of Christ. And then in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, we have this third glorious promise. Verse 1, for behold, the day is coming. And then verse 2, but for you who fear the name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Again, if that's, that's an echo if I can read Psalm or, or Isaiah 60, verses 1 and 2. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. 
For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. This is all about Jesus, right? All about Jesus. He has come. It's still dark out. He is coming again. There will be no darkness. The very end of this book, chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, mentions, as I, as I mentioned earlier in the sermon, Moses looking back at the law of God. Elijah looking forward. Uh, the prophet uh, Elijah fulfilled really through John the Baptist. And recall also where these two show up in the New Testament together. Story in Luke chapter 9 and some of the other Gospels, the Mount of Transfiguration. If you recall, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on a mountain, and he took them up there to pray, but as they were praying, um, Jesus was transfigured, um, changed his appearance, his clothes became, became dazzling white, and Luke tells us that, behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. That word could be translated, spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, if you could be invisible and eavesdrop into any conversation in history, what would it be? For me, it may just be this one. Love to have heard that conversation. But think about what we have here. We have Moses and Elijah representing the whole Old Testament. Moses, the law. Elijah, the prophets. And they're talking with Jesus, the fulfillment of their ministries. They're discussing with Jesus the departure, his departure, meaning his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father. And the reality is the salvation of all the saints, Old Testament, New Testament, depend Will Jesus be faithful to this mission? And what we see is, yes, indeed, was faithful to the cross. Malachi began with covenant blessing. I have loved you. But at the very end, if you notice, there's this threat of a curse on the land. But what we have, and what this would have left the people of God wondering is God going to curse what will happen? And what we find is Jesus comes and he takes the curse upon himself on the cross. And here's what I also think is profound. Throughout this book, or the last, old, the last three Old Testament prophets, they use the name for God, Lord of hosts, more than any others. It increases as, uh, as the prophets, uh, Malachi, it's increased the most in Malachi. 24 times this is used. And it's fitting. Think about it. The people have been defeated. Um, they really do not have an army at this point. Uh, the Lord of hosts, like God will protect them. But then we find this. We find Jesus, when he is, uh, the night he was betrayed, when he's in the garden, they come to, uh, they come to arrest him, and then Peter gets out his sword to fight. And Jesus says, no, no. Matthew 26, he says, do you not think that I can ask my father for 12 legions of angels? In other words, can, I could ask the Lord of hosts, and he'll send 12 legions, meaning 72,000 angels. 
But Jesus didn't. He didn't take that path. He took the path of the cross for us. He was faithful. So my last point is this, that as we, as we consider the faithfulness of God, how important it is for us to understand, if I could put it this way, the indicatives before the imperatives, because this is what God does. The indicative, meaning what is true. The imperative, then what to do. This is so important for our growth and holiness, so important for how we raise our kids in the church and in our own families. This is the covenant, the indicative before the imperative. I will be your God. God will be faithful. And he proved his faithfulness over and over, and he proved it at the cross. And then what's the imperative? And you will be my people. The imperative is for us to follow him in faithfulness to him, but as a response of his grace that he has extended to us. What is the motivation from the, for the Christian life? If we're just all about the imperatives, what to do, it's a life of legalism. What's our motivation? It is the love and the grace of God. And that should empower us and strengthen us, and then we, that builds us us, and we, and, and we take it out the doors. After Malachi, there will be 400 years of silence until John the Baptist will say these glorious words. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let's pray. Father, I give you thanks for the minor prophets from Malachi for this message. Help us to behold you in our moments, in our seasons of doubt and discouragement. And thank you that you are our faithful, covenant-keeping God. And Lord, as your people, we need you and for particular prayers. We pray for Denny Chadwick. Fell Monday morning, broke his hip requiring surgery, uh, surgery, and he is recovering and, and will need to, after recovery, uh, or part of his recovery, uh, be in a rehab facility after he's released from the hospital. So, Lord, pray for his pain to be managed. Draw close to him in this time. I pray that you would heal him quickly. Pray also for James and Hillary Cook, um, with, for James with some ex, uh, extreme stomach pain, and that you would Give wisdom to the doctors for solutions of what it's about. And for Hillary, who is pregnant and experiencing severe morning sickness, Lord, be with them. I pray that you would draw near to them. Help us as a church to really come alongside them in this time as well. And pray for Hillary's pregnancy um, as well. We also pray, think of John Harvitt, think of Janelle Slater, um, as they continue just to to battle, struggle with cancer, that you would be their strength. Draw them and their families close to you. Lord, we, we ask for relief from the pain, relief from the effects of treatment. More than anything, we do ask, if it is in your, wheel, in your will, to heal their bodies. We also know that you are God that will be glorified no matter what. And so we give you thanks for that truth. Pray also just for the world crisis in Ukraine that 
you would be with our brothers and sisters in Christ and the churches over there, that they would shine as salt and light in a dark, dark situation. Pray that you would cause this war to cease. Lord, as we think about just um, wars and rumors of wars and, and the reminder of this scripture, that there will be a day where you will come again. I pray that you would prepare us for that day that we would seek to be holy in your sight. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.